The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today I'll speak with Dr. Brad Thompson of Oncolytics Biotech about recent progress related to colorectal and lung cancer studies. I'll chat with L.A. producer, writer, and actress Kim Koff about her film called Experiment 77, heading into production later this year. And finally, we'll visit with financial advisor and psychologist Dr. Stephen Goldstein about investing philosophies. Questions, comments, or if you'd just like to say hello, contact me at martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports at gmail.com. This program is fully downloadable on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. If you don't have the TuneIn Radio app, download it on your phone. Now let's begin the program. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. What's going on now? Well, there's been preliminary results announced both in lung cancer and in colorectal cancer. And the colorectal cancer data in particular is very exciting and really sets the direction for us going forward in the near term. Let's review colorectal cancer. It's not specific to men or women. Anyone can get it, and it's been tough to treat. Colorectal cancer is a very serious cancer, and like many other cancers, if it's detected early, when it's still dislocalized in the colorectal range, it's usually curable or at least treatable, and usually by surgery or a combination of surgery or radiation. And I mean, it's just imagine a tube that's your colon, and they just top out a piece on either side of the tumor, and so the end back together like you would your garden hose if it had a leak and that usually works but it's when it spreads beyond that and it usually goes to places like the liver first and sometimes into the lymph nodes that's when it transitions from being treatable to being deadly and it is deadly I mean the long-term survival rates for a colorectal cancer are still not very good and most to all the patients depending on where you are when you're in that condition will end up dying I mean there, there needs to be improvement now there has been improvement in recent years there's been some new drug combinations introduced and I'll put a plug in for one of my colleague companies, introduction of Avast and into the treatment of colorectal cancer has really helped out. But there's still a lot of room for improvement. And so what we've been focusing on is looking to see if there's signs that realize in our product actually works on the metastatic lesions, because that's the ones that kill patients. And we've had two now randomized clinical studies, so studies where there's a control group that gets the standard of care versus the test group, which gets the standard of care plus real license, and that have indicated that we're actually seeing improved responses in the metastatic lesions that go to the liver. And uh, the first was in a head and neck study that we ran several years ago, and that was the first indication that we had in a randomized study that real 
real lice and actually works really well in metastatic lesions. And we have statistically significant outcome in reducing metastatic lesions, primarily in the liver. We've seen the same thing in this clinical study with colorectal cancer. And what we spotted was that in patients that had metastatic liver lesions, that we had a statistically significant improvement in both the response rate and the degree of shrinkage. That's quite remarkable. And so what we're planning on doing is now moving ahead with a follow-on study to confirm that, and that takes us right up to the end of the product development cycle. So it's extremely positive for us and positive for the patients involved, of course, and hopefully it will be positive in the end for our shareholders. When might we see more news in this particular study? We're still waiting for patients to finish, which is a nice euphemism for more patients, unfortunately, dying. So you can do the final statistics. And that relates to the other very interesting thing that we saw in this study is that there was, for the first time in a clinical study, we actually saw gender differences in response rates. The men, we saw about a 10% increase in response rate, which if you run a big enough study, would give you statistics that would be manageable. But the women just under tripled. And I said that word tripled. I don't get to say that very often, the response rate. So we took the response rate from you know the low 20s of percent, so partial responses are better, and took it up into the 60s. I've never seen that before, and then particularly in colorectal cancer. That presumably will show some, hopefully, lifespan benefit in the women. And there's certainly a trend for that now, but not enough patients have died. So the data analysis, there was still 60-some percent of the patients alive. So it's still early days in looking at that particular outcome. But very exciting just to see a trend, and we're hoping that over time that trend will firm up and we'll actually be able to say we're increasing lifespan in, in women and with colorectal cancer. Having a gender-specific therapeutic is really quite remarkable. It's really quite uncommon, and we're, I think hopefully everybody can tell, pretty excited about that possibility. Well, it is certainly fantastic news and a lot of potential for women and, of course, men who have been afflicted with that. Let's get back to lung cancer, and it's been my experience over the course of my lifetime that you don't always need to be a smoker to catch that particular disease. Is there any data on what causes lung cancer that you're aware of? Well, most lung cancers are caused by either first-hand exposure to smoke, you smoke or secondhand exposure to smoke, you know, being around people that smoke. But there is a small percentage of patients who get lung cancer without either of those risk factors. And honestly, we really don't know why. The assumption is there's some sort of environmental trigger, and usually the patients have genetics that predispose them to having cancer anyway. And so it's probably a combination of those two, but nobody's really established it. I mean, there's some very specific environmental things that cause cancer, like exposure to asbestos can cause cancer and and a few things like that, but it's mostly smoking. Is there any data on smoking cigarettes per se that would necessarily cause other kinds of cancer? in the body? Smoking causes a distressingly large number of cancers in the body. It's probably the single biggest thing that as a society we could do would be to quit smoking to prevent cancer. Uh, The second would be diet and the third would be exercise. I mean, if everybody didn't smoke, ate a balanced diet, not just one thing or the other, and we're in good shape, we'd probably cut our cancer rates by at least half maybe two-thirds. That's a pretty big number. But smoking, and pretty much anywhere where the smoking affects you is where you get the cancer. So most oral cancers are caused by smoking. Most head and neck cancers are caused by smoking. Lung, of course. But then you start getting into places you don't normally think of, like you know bladder cancer. Most bladder cancers are probably due to smoking. But when you think about it, where is all those toxins getting excreted? They're coming out in your urine, and where does your urine get pooled? Well, it's in your bladder, so that's the case. So, And there's a few other kind of more minor cancers, but those are the major 
major ones. But that's a big percentage of cancers. I mean, head and neck cancer is the third most common cancer. Lung cancer is arguably you know, the second. And we don't know about the risk factors and some other things. I mean, probably pancreatic cancers or some are induced by smoking, probably some colorectal cancers. All of a sudden, we're starting to talk about most of the cancers people know about, right? So it's, it's a really a serious thing. And certainly, you know, my family, I mean, both my mom and my uncle both died of directly of easily traceable to smoking-related cancers. It's just around and it's just there. There's been many people that have had lung cancer and they have died and they may not have been exposed to cigarettes or cigarette smoking for a good 20 years or more, but yet somehow it caught up with them later in life. Is there anything we can say to young people that feel fearless and resilient to pretty much anything that will translate into something that will shock them into uh, stopping smoking or not doing it if they're thinking of doing it? Well, if they're already smoking, I mean, the risk factor really drops down, depending on who you talk to, really drops down either between five or 10 years of quitting smoking. You're pretty much back to baseline. I mean, there are cases, as you just mentioned, that people still get cancer from smoking after that. But pretty much most of your risk is gone if you quit and you make it through the next five or 10 years. It's really tough to tell somebody who thinks they're immortal. You know, most kids think they're immortal. I did. I mean, I didn't think anything could happen to me. It's just a miracle of some sorts that I made it through my teen years. When you look back, you go, whoa, that's not a very good thing. But you no, know, I did, and here I am. But it's really hard to tell somebody who has that mindset. And if we all think about it, we all did pretty much. You know, something that may not cause a problem for you for 20, 30, 40, 50 years is a big deal. I mean, it's really hard not to do that. And showing pictures of, you know, seven-year-olds with lung cancer doesn't really help much. But when you see celebrities, some of those celebrity ads that people have done when they're dying and they do, but by the time you've seen this ad, I've already died of lung cancer, those kind of things matter. And those things actually have had positive impacts. It's like the same thing they did with, I mean, it's not cancer, but those commercials where they showed the effects on your appearance of using meth, that had more impact than talking about addiction and all the health risks. The right type of advertising can really make a difference. I think when actor Leonard Nimoy was dying, he issued that sort of proclamation against smoking that it had been a factor in his death. Yeah, and, and that one being a lifelong Leonard Nimoy and Spock fan, it moved me. And I, you know, I don't smoke. I mean, I saw that sequence. When people mean something to you as a celebrity, it has an impact. I mean, it really does. So it's too bad, you know, David Bowie couldn't have done one of those because that would have had an impact on a different population. And I mean, you can just go through the list of people that died of things. You know, when Patrick Swayze died of pancreatic cancer, he did a little sequence, if I remember correctly, before he died. And I mean, those things really matter to people because those people are, are real to all of us. And they're real to millions, tens, hundreds of millions of people. So what is the basis of your excitement this week? Because you seem very amped up. When you look at what kills cancer patients, I think that explains why I'm amped up. I mean, most primary cancers, so like cancer of the pancreas, cancer of the colon, cancer of the lung, aren't what kill cancer patients. What kills cancer patients is when that spreads beyond that primary organ site into other regions. We call it metastasis. The two metastatic sites that kill most patients are brain cancer metastasis and liver metastasis. And this the second time in a randomized clinical study, we've actually seen liver metastasis having a lot of benefit by treating real license. Last year, we actually saw for the first time brain metastasis having the first time impact with real license. And so what you've got is an agent here that actually might address both of the major reasons that people die. And that Honestly, I thought I'd never be able to say that out loud, but you know, we'll have to prove it up in further studies and that. But it's 
it's there. You can see it. And, and that's why I'm excited. That is truly why I'm excited. Well, we're excited, too, and we're very pleased to have you as a sponsor of this particular program. We're getting the word out to many individuals that have had a direct experience or an indirect experience with cancer. And there's also a potential investment opportunity with Oncolytics Biotech. Brad, thank you again for joining me today on the program. Oh, thank you very much, Ellis. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with actor, producer, and writer Kim Koff. Her screenplay, Experiment 77, is scheduled to go into production this year, in October of 2016. Attached to this film is the iconic British actor, Malcolm McDowell. Kim, welcome to the program. It's a real treat to have you on today. Oh, thank you so much. Speaking of treats, it's been a long, long time since we've had a brand new cult classic and and i'm thinking experiment 77 might be it i'm going to read the last line from the synopsis experiment 77 encompasses a gory comedic sexy ironic yet shocking and horrific chemically induced journey which will bring the audience's perception to a standstill i'm already exhausted (laughs) i know well i certainly hope that we do uh, bring them to a standstill and cause a lot of debate regarding the movie afterwards so that's our goal now in some ways i'm going to call this with the addition of malcolm mcdowell to the cast as dr stone i'm going to call this and i'm sure i'm wrong but i'm going to call it a reboot of clockwork orange isn't there some sort of connection in there somewhere well there certainly is the connection with malcolm mcdowell but i'd like to say it's more like a rocky horror picture show meets the shining (laughs) so i don't know if that's intriguing to you but i hope so okay next question you're free to give me a virtual slap if you don't like the question were you in a chemically induced state when you dreamed up Experiment 77? No, actually I wasn't. It originated years ago. I was going through a really hard time trying to help a family member that was thrown into the mental health to an institution and that world. And it was really debilitating for me as it was for her. I felt pretty helpless in the situation. So I just started writing as a form of therapy. Then it turned into a script and then has evolved to where it is today. And as you know, with a lot of pain, there's always want to have a little bit of an outlet with humor, hence the dramedy end of it. I think a dramedy and something like this is a great way to flip a tragedy and very unpleasant time into something highly entertaining. In fact, a lot of comedy does come from tragedy, does it not? Oh, it does from pain. I mean, the best comedians always, you know, have a lot of pain in their life. 
life. So yeah, I think so. I agree with you. Now, Mr. McDowell is known for attaching himself to projects where he can really explore, I guess, insanity, if you will. He recently was featured as a main character on Mozart in the Jungle for their first two seasons. Did an incredible job. He's a real actor. And the best part about acting is when you're not acting, that's when you do your best work. You just be a version of who you are for this particular project. And what version is the character of Dr. Olivia West coming from? I'll be playing Dr. Olivia West. And she's actually runs the institution and she's working with Dr. Stone closely. And I don't want to give it too much away, but on something that they're just trying to come up with a vaccine type of cure for something. I noticed there's going to be some, and this is what I'm looking forward to. I don't know how highly choreographed they're going to be, but I'm hoping they are. Zombie dance numbers will be in this film, correct? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's the vision of the director. We have an amazing director, Max Leonida. He has a vision for this. I'm excited to take it that next step and take it further into that kind of fun, comedic outlet. Should this production be a lot of fun for any of the actors and crew involved? Oh, yes, absolutely. We have Jonathan Goldstein. I don't know if you know the TV show, Josh and Drake. He was on for many years. He played the father. He's going to play one of the lead roles of Daniel. We also have Ian Harvey. He was on Transparent. And now he's just signed on to do um, this next season of Mistresses. We're all really excited. Oh, gosh, I have such a great team around me. We're working together. The excitement is really contagious, I have to say. When are you going into production and where are the general locations? We're hoping to go into production mid-October. I'm working very closely with my producing partner. She's amazing, Paula Cipollino. She and Max are Italian. They've done a lot of amazing projects in Italy. Now they're working a lot in the United States. Actually, we're going to be filming in Los Angeles. We want to try to keep it close to home and then maybe we'll be doing some second unit up north in California or maybe go up to Washington. So when will we be able to see this on the screen? If we get to shoot in October, that's our goal. It'll be out in 2017. Kim, what's involved in putting together a project like this? Well, we have investors that we've worked with in the past. Paula and I are currently executive producers on a TV series called Bruna and Beverly Hills. You know, you put together a proposal and you have interest from main actors and you have connections, you know, with these investors and just kind of move forward that way. It's a gamble, isn't it, when you make a film? But uh, with a, a script like this and the cast that you've assembled, hopefully there'll be a very good return on investment for the people that do, in fact, participate. I'm pretty positive about it. Horrors are the easiest, I think, in the business to sell. And that's worldwide. Kim, it's a real pleasure to meet you like this, and I look forward to somehow enjoying a part of this film, if not in production, at least uh, on opening night. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. I've been speaking with actor, producer, and writer Kim Kopp, creator of Experiment 77. Look for it in theaters in 2017. Find this segment on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Who are the small companies with big opportunities? Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities at our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Because no one has asked my opinion on the 2016 U.S. presidential election, I'm going to offer it up. It's been about 240 years since the Declaration of Independence was signed. We've steadfastly lasted this long as a nation, and we're here now at a tipping point of some sort. On one side of the two-sided political fence, we've enforced an engorged political oligarchy. Why? 
It's her turn. We know what's best for you. Now do what we say. The other side? Well, that's a product of eight years of ignoring and marginalizing half the population of this country with the same mentality, which then again is the product of eight years of warmongering nation-building propagated by the previous office holder and a failed economy that was beyond the wherewithal of the same leader. Extreme forces have been in play, and therefore extreme solutions are the order of the day. If you add up both the Bernie supporters and the Trump voters, you'll get a windfall of individuals who collectively won't tolerate the status quo any longer. Yet this may be the reason why the status quo will remain even after the election. Most of the population may not be happy with the result. Hopeless despair and riots in the streets, can we expect that this summer? I wouldn't doubt it. Those on the left will capitalize on the mob crowd mentality and they will stir the pot, effectively quashing free speech. Having said that, why would we replace one polarizing politician with yet another. Actually, I now don't believe that Trump has a chance of making it to the White House. He doesn't have the machine. The other side does. Machismo, but no machine. A badass muscle car with no road to get anywhere. The others have that machine, and they will do to him what he's been asking for, which will result in capitulation. Why is that? They have to. They will. Trump has not made himself endeared by more than half of the population of this country, and he'll need to do that to win, and he won't be able to. It's not in vogue to support him in a vast majority of the urban centers of the U.S. or the state of California, home to 40 million people, or New York. It's just not cool. It needs to be cool. This is a cool country, and we need a cool leader. The couple that has been in power in the 90s, they're not cool now. They're not cool at all. Trump is not cool. Now, Bernie's cool. I'll give him that. He's Seinfeld cool, but he's being railroaded and carpet-bagged out. He's got no chance, just like Hillary said. Now, who will get my vote in November? A non-polarizing figure who is a unifier and not a divider. A fiscal conservative who is very socially liberal. The majority of the population, we all want a unifier, not a polarizer. Vote for this guy. He's on the ballot in all 50 states, and his name is Gary Johnson, former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson. Why Gary Johnson? Just look him up for yourself and form your own opinion. I'm not going to do all of your work for you. He just may unify and not conquer and divide. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report is absolutely unpaid and only a matter of my personal opinion. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Dr. Stephen Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein is a Los Angeles-based psychologist who's held positions in clinical psychology and management at a number of mental health clinics, including D.D. Hearst Community Mental Health Center and Kaiser Permanente. He's also taught at Cal State Northridge, and Dr. Goldstein has had a private practice since 1997. Additionally, he's an investor and a trader, managing family and friends portfolios, having formed Goldstein Advisors, LLC. He's a licensed financial planner, advising high net worth clients' portfolios for an annual fee of 1% of the client's assets under management. There are no additional fees. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report is unpaid and not a solicitation for business, reflecting only my opinion and that of Dr. Goldstein. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you. There's two careers that define you right now, basically. You are a psychologist working here in Los Angeles, and you also are a money manager of sorts. Portfolio manager, yes. 
you pretty much choose the way you like to live. You keep your own hours. You, you do what you like. One of the reasons we're here today is, is to discuss a pattern of success that defines a lifestyle that suits us individually. And of course, as an individual, there's no set template. But as a psychologist, I am sure that you see certain templates that work for each individual. Basically, there's many people in our age category, and let's just say that we're 50, 60 plus, that are successful <laughs> yeah, and that are happy. And there are many that are not and that are looking for a lifestyle change. This is something you deal with on a regular basis, correct? Yes. Well, let's talk about success and let's talk about the road to it. For those who are in our age category, how do you transition from a bit of despair and anxiety to a life of happiness at our age? At this age? Yes. I think it starts with selecting the right parents before you're born and getting a wonderful parenting from them. Ideally, you are getting socialized well before three. And, and I think by 12, you should be thinking, a 12-year-old should have some thoughts, however imaginative, about what they would like to do when they become an adult what they want to do, how they want to make money. And they should be educated about money and what it takes to prosper and live and support a family and a girlfriend and children. And at 20-ish, one should clearly be making that choice, not just imagining. And it should be well-researched. If those things have not been done well, or at least partially well, you don't have a, a, a great likelihood of tremendous freedom and success at our age. On the other hand, this country is good, is great in the sense that there are many and often varied and unconventional paths to success, so that one often does get second chances and so forth. I think if I had a bumper sticker, and I do, that I often quote to young and people of euphemistically said our age, and I think it applies to all of the sort of eight stages of development, is know yourself and then do a lot of it. I'm not a big believer in quote, finding your passion, but I am a big believer in knowing yourself and then doing a lot of that. Do what you're good at. You're just not going to do well in life if you're not doing what you're good at. To now come around the barn to your question about, it used to be considered old age, but now we find at 50 and 60 that people are quite capable due to medicine and the internet and economic opportunities. People are quite capable and have the options now of starting second careers. That wasn't true for my grandfather's age. The other thing is that with the internet, and as we were talking earlier, with Amazon willing to deliver all of our purchases to our door, and with a very mobile country, we are very capable at, at our age of downsizing and making a decision that we want to revise our former financial goals. We are capable of deciding, you know, I can continue on working 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week at this high-stress job and earning, getting more and more money. Or I can explain to my wife that I don't want to die in the saddle. I've earned a lot of money, I've done well, and I'd like to now spend my life doing something creative. The family, the mom, and the, sometimes and the children will resist this. What do you mean you're going to quit this wonderful position? But I think it's quite possible. You have to decide that you're going to have to maybe not have your four houses, your three houses. You're not going to have all your cable. Your children might not have all the cable TV they want. Maybe you'll cut your vacations, but you will, and it will take a year or two, during which you will probably be, dis, judging from talks you and I have had, it might take a year or two, uh, during which you're a little disoriented, as you sort of realize all of your time is yours now. You are your employer. And really, what are the things I say to the person you mentioned at our age who has this opportunity is to either have another career 
or downsize or just quit their job and live on less. One of the things I say to them is, at this stage, the only failure could be imagination. The imagination to conceive of having, your, as we were just talking about, having your goods delivered from Amazon instead of driving around to the mall. The freedom to do things that look, as, as John Lennon said, the freedom to watch the wheels roll on and you have to learn how to tolerate. Your friends saying, as John Lennon said, people say I'm crazy, but he likes to sit and watch the wheels go round. Which, for in my case, means I like to, I love to read. I read, I'm sure, four or five hours a day, and of course I work in the market. You have to be imaginative. You can't just say, well, uh, as they used to say at age 65, well, time to fold in the tent and lay on the couch, wait for the grandchildren to visit me. But again, you have to be uh, imaginative. You have to allow yourself to experiment. And you have to tolerate people saying, uh, you're lazy. You know, you could do so much more. Uh, One of the things I find, every single day I am throwing out mental baggage by which I mean habits that were extremely valuable and useful to me. I used to work 12 plus hours a day. I need to cut it back to four. My judgment in the market starts to deteriorate if I do too much in the market. My judgment deteriorates. Every day I'm throwing things off the ship. I don't need this habit anymore. I can afford that. I don't have to be saving. I still notice it in the supermarket. I always uh, compare the unit pricing. This can of tomatoes versus that can. Oh, this is 0.04 cents less. These were great habits when I was very poor and a student for 15 years, whatever it was. These were great habits when I had no money. They're just ways to drive yourself crazy now, but I still find myself doing them. Now, unfortunately, some people get to earlier stages at 50 or so, and they, quote, hit the wall. They find that the plan they made in their teens or 20s, or the lack of plan, has hit the wall. It is not worked out. They decided to start a, a service of selling ice to people who needed it for their refrigerators, say in the 20s or whenever, you know, and oops, no one has ice deliveries anymore. So there's people who may put their ladder against a wall, they climb to the top of the ladder, and then they find, oops, put my ladder against the wrong wall. They go the way of blockbuster video. That's right. I'm going to make my career rising in the ranks of blockbuster video. That's right. And they don't look at the numbers that say their income or their savings are declining. They don't listen to people who are saying to them, I don't think VHS is going to be around too much longer. They don't listen. They say, I know that this is going to work with perseverance and will. And they get to 40 or 50 and oops, it takes a harsh slam in the head. Those clients who come in, one has to do bold intervention to get them to understand that this might be their last chance to start any kind of financial planning so that when you get to 60, 70, you're not in, let's say, dire straits. You're not working at Starbucks. I don't mean to be mean. I've noticed over five, 10 years, one of my economic soft indicators that I see older and older people working as box boys in the market, Starbucks as baristas. And I assume that these are the people whose financial plans hit the wall and they didn't have a backup. But you know, that's no fault of many of them. Actually, we were never taught, and you and I are about the same age, we were never taught in, at least I wasn't, in Mm -hmm. elementary school and middle school or even high school, how to deal with a changing Mm -hmm. business environment over a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Many of us, not me, worked for the corporation, more or less, for lack of a better word, for many years, had their 401k, and they were laid off in their 40s -hmm. and late 50s. And those funds were depleted, and they never had the mechanism, the mechanics of making a career adjustment. Well, I know for myself, I was never one who was able to do that sort of job, work for somebody for 10, 20, 
15 years or five years. So this sort of lifestyle is all I've ever done. So I'm not making an adjustment. I'm constantly evolving mm-hmm. from when I was a child. Mm-hmm. I call it the artistic gestalt. There's a little bit of art involved in creating a lifestyle that's prosperous and also that allows you the time to be lazy, at least in the mm-hmm. eyes of others. <laughs> I don't call it lazy. Quote, unquote, lazy. Well, yeah, and I can own that periodically. But while I'm sitting around watching the wheels turn, I'm conceiving of things I can right. possibly do. Right. You're talking about probably most of the American culture. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is a disgrace that there isn't, I don't know if anything has changed recently, but to my knowledge, you're right, it's none of their fault. The 60-year-old who has to take the job is at minimum wage. No, 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 this is not his quote-unquote fault. And you're right, you're absolutely right. It is a disgrace that there isn't a single finance class taught in K-1 through 12. Bless him, Warren Buffett has started in the last few years cartoon TV shows for children on learning about finance and investing. When I see children, that almost always means I'm seeing their parents simultaneously or with them. As a psychologist? Yes, as a psychologist. When I bring books for children, which I do a lot, and I bring a finance book for a three-year-old on savings, there's actually about 12, 16 decent books on finance for ages three through 18. It's even one book on the Federal Reserve for children, believe it or not. I get the parents' permission first, and I explain what I'm doing. I have had no trouble teaching finance to a two-year-old. No trouble. That's unheard of. How do you do that? Well, I'll give you one example, a sort of goddaughter of mine. This is not a psychology client, but I'll give you the most glaring example. In my home, I have a penny pot, a pot in which one puts pennies, saves them, and then, and this was the pot that my grandmother used to teach me savings. There's a two-year-old who comes over with her parents, and she goes right to the penny pot, and we just sit and look at the coin. Well, how much is a quarter, and would you like a dime or ten or ten pennies, which, by the way, three-year-olds always take the ten pennies. It's called lack of formal operations. And when I see her in the park or at the grocery store, she yells out, penny pot. She loves to do that. In fact, her birthday's coming up, so I was thinking of buying her one. So you start with simple things like putting pennies into a pot and then watching them come out the bottom, throwing all my box of coins on the floor for me to pick up after she leaves. And in terms of clients, you bring books and you read them. If they have a birthday, I frequently give children gifts on their birthday. I might buy them a cash register, a toy cash register at the age of six or seven. They love it. If they are approaching teens, I talk to them and their parents about little jobs they could do during the summer, car washes, mowing lawns, the old traditional stuff helping clean something out for somebody. Maybe a neighbor needs something done. I think it's a myth. Oh, you'll scar the children talking about finances. This baloney. Children want to be adults like crazy. They want to be adults so bad. The funny thing is they don't know how, so they have to tolerate parents and their rules. But they're just thrilled to be adults. When a child puts on a Batman cape or a Michael Jordan shirt at the age of 6, 3, 10, what do you think they're doing? They're practicing to be adults, but they're using the only role models that are often available, the ones that come through the entertainment industry. As a psychologist, I just provide them with a broader range of models. This is a picture of Warren Buffett. He's the richest man in the world. Do you know how he started? He started by delivering newspapers. Oh, and they're thrilled at this idea. So I've never had any resistance from my children in teaching finance. The parents often think, well, they're not going to learn this, but they, they learn otherwise. All right. Well, they get to visit with Dr. Stephen Goldstein occasionally, these young children. But the rest of the time, they're being bombarded with entertainment and, mm-hmm. and commercials and signs all over on buildings uh, proclaiming, uh, buy my stuff. Yeah. Don't you want 
to buy my stuff, you yeah. need to have my stuff. Yeah. And that is a large part of our culture, it, obtaining and spending culture. There's nothing about saving that's propagated in the media, more or less. And that's what you're combating. And that's one of the downfalls of the society which we live in, which I happen to like the fact that whatever we can conceive of, we can accomplish. And I like to buy mm-hmm. stuff myself, stuff mm-hmm. that usually mm-hmm. serves my creative interest or my business interest. How do you combat that right. in the young? Great Great question. Well, it must be combated. It's not an option. My thinking has evolved quite a bit. I'm not lukewarm on this. I think that, yes, I'm not a monk. I I like to buy things. I like to have things that entertain me and so forth. But we have to remember that a child's nervous system isn't finished forming until about 25. Okay? If I'm 50, I can make a rational choice about, is this glass of scotch good for me or bad for me? Is a moderation good? Yeah. I can make those decisions. That's not a decision a 10-year-old can make, and that's not a decision a 16-year-old. They want to fit in. They want social approval. So they'll basically just do what the environment is telling. And if they can find a way to do it to piss off their parents, oh, all the better. I want to be clear. I think that for children, God bless the country, the entertainment, if you're selective about what you use as an adult, good, fine. There's a lot of terrific stuff on HBO that didn't used to be there. But I think that the entertainment culture is ubiquitous in this country. And I think that for young people, zero to 25, it is poison. So we're doomed. No. The responsibility, more than any time before, including even the 50s when I was raised, and I guess you were raised, it all falls on the parents. The community isn't going to do it anymore. It is the parents' responsibility to be the gatekeepers for how much of that stimulation is part of the child's world. And when the child does choose that stimulation, let's say an hour-long cartoon show at the end of the day. And I think parents should sit with the children and talk about them with the cartoons so that they're not just spaced out, zoning out, hypnotized, etc. If you're a parent, you can't find things to teach your child. You shouldn't have really had children. And I often tell parents, you can't outwit a three-year-old, you're in the wrong game. But how do we, as a society, teach us, ourselves, our children... I have a daughter in her mid-30s. How do you teach people in that age category how to be good parents? An awful lot of the books on parenting are poor. I have a list of my favorite six or 12. I assign reading. Uh, I have my favorite books to assign. I sometimes buy the parents the book as a gift. I mean, when a parent comes in with a child, it's not because the child said, I'm having anxiety and angst about the world condition. I'd like to see a therapist. I don't think that's ever happened to a three-year-old. So why do parents bring in a child? Well, it's simple. They are at their rope's end. They are exasperated. And believe me, they don't come in at the first sign of trouble. They come in when they are completely wiped out with the last few years of behavior. It's not difficult, actually, to point out that they're exhausted and they can't keep going like this because when the child is bigger... They're not going to be able to put their hands on the child's shoulders, pick them up, and move them to another room. They're going to be bigger, and the child, the late teen child, can hit them, can push them down, can punch them, can simply walk out. So you better do these things now because it's going to just get worse. If you think this is bad, wait till they're 17. There's also more trouble they can get into, of course, because there's more influences. And you have to tell parents, parents, you know, you have to say, uh, you need to know that parenting is essentially a 24-7 game. There used to be a concept, I think, in the 60s that you could be a parent and just, if you were really busy, you could just set aside 30 minutes or 60 minutes of, quote, 
quality time. It's baloney. I saw Robert Reich, the former Secretary of uh, Labor, he was saying that the quality time concept is nonsense, and his wonderful metaphor was, children are like clams. They open up at any time. You have to be there to catch them when they're open to ideas and influence. Miss the time, and you can't come back after being away at work for three weeks or a week or three days and say, you know, I heard you were upset about the bully at school a few days ago, and you want to tell me about that? By that time, uh, 12, 15 years is, eh, it's okay. Are you bothered? No. Well, what happened to them? Nothing, nothing, no. But if you catch them when the clam opens up, oh boy, and it's all right there. It's 24-7, but that doesn't mean you're working 24-7. That means you are, as Obama often uses the words, uh, you're always watching for the learning opportunity, the teaching opportunity. And they may come once a week, they may come once a day. You know, most, what psychologists know is that 80% or more of what a child learns is from simply modeling. The best way to be a parent is, uh, there's a lot of technique, of course, but the best way is to start by just being the sort of person you want your child to grow into. Children are magnificent imitators. Just be the sort of person you think they should grow into. If you're drinking beer every night, what do you think they're going to do? If they see you reading books all the time, what do you think they're going to do? Well, there must be something good in those books. If you don't read books and you say to them, oh, reading books is so important, and they don't see you doing it, you're asking for trouble. Children, I often say, are giant satellite dishes. They're picking everything up, everything. All of the universes, everything around them. They're still building the software to decipher it. They have all this code, but they don't know how to decipher it. That's the parent's job, to install the software that deciphers the code. So when the child is melting down, having a temper tantrum, that's because the stimulation from the satellite dish has gotten way too much. They don't have anywhere near the software to interpret. And you have to take them aside, gently hold them, and explain this is why this happened. And you have to install the software step by step by step. To get back to your question, to incentivize parents, there's only a few joys. There's a, lim- there's a finite number of joys with parenting. A lot of it is just extremely hard and taxing. It ends up just boring. The same question repeated over time, over and over and over and over. Why, 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 why? The number of joys in parenting are finite. And if you want to truly enjoy those for the length of your life, not just from now till 20, and then they go off to the other part of the world, you hear them from them once a year, once 10 years. If you want to truly enjoy the finite number of joys in parenting. You have to uh, do your work now. Or when they're 18, 20, you'll meet with them, you'll sit on the sofa, everyone will sit on the sofa and look at the TV. And that'll be their visit to you. And they'll look at their watch, just anxious to leave after the football game is over. This isn't my idea of the joy of parenting. My idea of the joy of parenting is that uh, you're having wonderful conversations with them at the when they're 40, so forth. That's not going to happen. If you don't show them the, what you have to offer. You've often pointed out in the short time we've known each other, I'll say, well, we didn't do much uh, here. And then you'll say, well, we had a good conversation. What a surprise that you're running a podcast. That's right. I was watching a program and people said, we're not sure that reading is going to continue to be with the internet and the sound bites and the Twitters. And some authors on, on C-SPAN, which nobody watches but me, were saying that reading, uh, we're not sure reading is gonna, isn't going to die out. I would add conversation. If you think carefully, how many people do you enjoy sitting and talking with for one, two, three hours? Sometimes they just don't have anything to say. Sometimes they're inhibited about saying it. Anyway, in Freud's age, talking about sex earned you the scarlet A. Now, it's that's just not true. Now, I think the taboo is talking about finance. Even with a good friend, try saying, how are you doing financially? What's your net worth? What is your financial planning? That's not a question that I feel comfortable hearing from anybody, that's right. really. When I they mean, ask you. Yes, exactly. It's nobody's right. business, is it? Well, if that's how you feel, that's legitimate. But one of the big surprises for me as a clinician was when clients come in, one of the first things I do is to figure out what developmental stage they're at, which means what developmental stage are they stuck? 
so that I can get them unstuck and move forward and turn the crisis into an opportunity, which is what you began the podcast talking about when you're 60 and how do you... I actually, at one point, when I started Finance 20, I tried to incorporate finance into my clinical evaluation, which means the first session you meet a patient, a client, and almost 100% responded to the question. They recoiled. They didn't think. They assumed that my motives for asking were venal and self-serving. In other words, I was looking to get my hand in their wallet. And I get that. I understand. It happens a lot. It's the way everything works. Right. I was wrong. They were right. I was naive. And I would be smart enough to back off immediately. But I would come back to it in roundabout ways. Without getting detailed about the numbers, I would ask, well, what are you hoping to do when you're 60? I would go roundabout. Do you think they're really going to promote you? If you remember Death of a Salesman. The tragedy of Willie Loman. This is my favorite play. I'm sure that influences why I'm here today. Wow. One of the tragedies of Willie Loman, and I could talk about Death of a Salesman for Days, but one of the tragedies is that in that scene where he goes to visit the son of the boss who he worked for for his entire life, one of the tragedies is that he was a salesman for that company for his entire life. And he really believed that when he got to old age, they would do the right thing and give him a kind of corner desk to make it to retirement. They would let him stop being on the road, living, selling on the road and have a corner desk, something easy. Instead, they fired him because why? He had failed to grow as a salesman. He had failed to move with the industry. So all of his skills were outdated. They didn't need him anymore, and so they fired him. So if a client says, I just know that my company is going to reward me for filling in the same hole for 40 years and letting my skills wither. No, I don't know how to use the internet, but I don't think they mind that. If they think that they're going to walk in like Willie Loman and get that promotion that used to happen, you know, in this country in the 20s, the gold, remember the gold watch? You know, you'd stay until 65, then you'd get a dinner, and they'd give you the gold watch. You know anybody who's gotten that lately? You got to buy your own gold watch. <laughs> That's right. That's right. One of the things I like to say to people, sometimes they say, uh, well, you should buy this or that stock. Well, I found a stock I really like. I have really intelligent investors. Metrics, sure. Yeah. They give me good ideas. But sometimes if they say it more than once or twice, admittedly, I get a little bored and annoyed. And I say, well, I tell you what, if I buy this and it goes bust, will you hold a benefit to raise money for the rest of my life, my retirement? That ends the conversation pretty fast. I remember seeing that, remember Lyle Alzado yeah, yeah. of the Oakland Raiders, sure. or then the LA Raiders, I think he was still in the team. But Lyle Alzado, he was clearly, I think, his, uh, he was brain damaged at the end. And they held a benefit for him to get him through the last years because it was so clearly messed up. He had dementia or traumatic brain syndrome of some sort. But they held a benefit, I think the Raiders did. No one's going to do that for me. No one's going to do that for you. And I don't think anyone's going to be doing that for 99% of the people listening. Uh, the interesting thing about the economy now is we're all free agents now. Remember when Kurt Flood declared himself a free agent and the case went to the Supreme Court and his case set the precedent that you could become a free agent. A lot of people were shocked and appalled. Oh, baseball will be ruined, blah, blah, blah. Whatever you think of the decision, that it changed the game forever. My view is that it also changed how we think about working for a living, which is my view is that from that moment on, it wasn't just in baseball. We are all free agents. When I used to go for job interviews and I talked to young people, that when they go for a job interview, they should always go understanding in the back of their mind, not openly. They're being interviewed, but they are also interviewing their potential employer to see if the employer is worthwhile working for. Speaking of how you teach finance, that's one of the things that I say to 20-year-olds. You are what you eat. You are who you surround yourself with. You bet. 
Where's the science, and I put that in quotation marks, behind like-minded individuals, meeting like-minded individuals and interacting with folks that are going to bring you up instead of bringing you down for the purpose of Mm -hmm. personal happiness and abundance financially? Great question. You're right. If you are living in a sewer, you'll have rats as friends. Remember Ed Norton on the Honeymooners? Ed Norton worked in the sewer all day. That means he comes home with a little bit of stink on him. Whatever job you pick, you will come home with a little bit of that smell on you. So if you worked with horrible people who you can't stand, don't pretend that you can come home, have a drink, and it's all washed off. It's it's wearing you down. So the negative is certainly, I think, obvious. And it's easy to have a surrounding that is degrading you by the day. By removing, over the course of time, those instances or individuals as much as possible Mm -hmm. that, that might provide some sort of, as you put it, stink at the end of the day that's right that's right it's pretty blunt if i know really if i spend an hour and a half with my with a very good friend just talking on the phone about books we've read which i do that's my idea of a wonderful way to use my time i think that when you get older creating your environment so that it is conducive to your best self your best life is uh, sometimes you can't of course but if you have the option there's nothing more important i will give you the most extreme example i've ever heard charlie munger the partner of berkshire hathaway he bought the whole office building in which he has an office so that he chooses who all of the renters are so he doesn't even have to spend time in the elevator or at the water cooler with anybody he doesn't want to talk to now talk about going back to creativity and imagination that's the most imaginative none of a few of us have the means to do that of course but we do have the means to say which party will i go to which friends do i want to talk to which groups do i want to belong to whose nonsense Do I want to listen to for the fourth time? You know, when you work in organizations, which I did for virtually all my life, you have to get along. It's a damn good idea to get along, however good or bad I was at it. And now I pay as much attention to whether they get along with me and whether they make my day richer or poorer. It's not being selfish. I mean, I've been accused of being selfish when doing exactly that. Well, it is selfish, but I think it's selfishness in the service of mental health. There's all kinds of selfishness. If one has, has, let's say, uh, cancer, God forbid, you have to be selfish in order to you know, undergo treatment. You have to neglect certain things. So there's all kinds of selfishness, and I think it depends on what it's in the service of. Laurence Olivier once said that actors have to be the most selfish people in the world. And what he meant by that was all of our attention has to be to ourself, nobody else, which meant the girlfriends and women were just accoutrements <laughs> yeah that's right they were ornaments the woman was there to tell them how good they looked how good that suit looked on them and how good they were in, in the play the exactly base. you know it's amazing there are people who talk and they never say well so how are you what are you doing it's very simple but Dale Carnegie 101 Dale Carnegie I assigned to every teenager every teenager it works it is the best pop psych book ever written and when you understand that it's a hundred years old and it's still in my opinion the best pop psych book ever written. I don't think you should have an adolescence without reading that book. It's the perfect socialization book. It's about listening. It's about paying attention. Uh And actually, it's about kissing a little A. That's right. James Carville once said, he was impatient with these people who said, oh, this candidate is just an ass kisser. Oh, I don't like him. And he would think, what are they talking about? He said, if you're going to run for politics, or for that matter, in most of adult life, you might as well just bend over (laughs) and stay in that position 
you're going to be kissing ass the whole campaign to become president. Uh, what are they talking about? Uh, who goes through an adult life not having to kiss somebody's behind? There's no such thing. But it, there's meaningful, yeah. heartfelt ass kissing that really is, is, is <laughs> what's going to benefit everybody. Correct. <laughs> I've never said that out loud as they, before, as they used or to, even thought it. <laughs> as I forget who said this. Sincerity is easy once you've learned how to fake it. And well, that's uh, the one thing I found about Dale Carnegie. There were quite a few bullet points mm-hmm. toward the road to success mm-hmm. that if you just do it, it becomes part of who you are naturally and you wind up enjoying it anyway. That's right. Any career you pick is going to have months, years, days of stagnation, problems, frustration, failure. Just speaking for myself, the only way I can imagine getting through that without resorting to, you know, to drink is if you enjoy what you're doing regardless of yesterday's failure. If you just enjoy the substance of what you're doing, period. I don't mean to set this aside as a virtue, but I didn't know what my paycheck was for my first job as a psychologist for quite some time. I didn't want to know and I didn't know and I didn't care. I was quite thrilled to be doing this and that was just fine with me. Even now I charge far below community standards as a psychologist and also as a financial manager. I charge just 1%, period. No additional fees, no nothing. The only way I really make money is if they make money so that the 1% of their assets becomes more and more. Can you do in four hours a day what you used to be able to do in 15 hours and make just as much money, if not more? In this market where I believe, in my opinion, that we're in the grips of a failed monetary policy and certainly fiscal policy. Yes, because if you think that there are wonderful bargains just lying around after eight years of an overvalued, overstimulated market, if you think there's great bargains lying around, I have a bridge to sell you. All right. So there have been some adjustments and maybe three or four years ago, it might have been more lucrative as a trader, as an investor mm-hmm. than it is today. Let's let's say that 2011 was a nice year. The year 2000 was a nice year. Uh, 1997 might have been a good year. Mm-hmm. I'm just picking years. We all know what the bad ones were. When the blood runs in the street. <laughs> My view, the way I work, I really have my 100 to 300 best companies, best ideas. And how are you finding them? Oh, that's just fundamental work. Just turning over rocks, reading my brains out, reading, 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 and then when I'm done, reading some more. But no more than 150 or so, right? My best ideas, yes, 100, my best. But I also have others that I look at. Sometimes I look at a company just because uh, it's interesting, but I wouldn't buy it. Is there a software that brings these metrics to you? Is there a specific program or is it just your knowledge? There aren't any formulas. No, there's no software. I'm just a fundamentalist. You just stick your ass in the chair and you read. That's it. And that means you look at the SEC filings. I have a spreadsheet. You do the numbers. You figure out what the company is worth. You figure out its intrinsic value, which means what it will be worth in 10 years. And if the price is below that now, uh, I buy it if it's reasonable and other things. Uh, You can look ahead 10 years. To what I think it's worth? Yeah. How does the study of psychology factor into Mm -hmm. financial planning? Well, as everyone knows, Richard Thaler founded Behavioral Finance some time ago, and that's now a relatively popular field. So it's official that the psychology of misjudgments is a legitimate target of economic study. But yes, I came to it 
before Richard Thaler. He won the Nobel Prize, I believe. But I came to it, obviously, from a different direction, being a psychologist. So let me answer it that way. Let me answer it from my own perspective, not from what we now have as research. If you don't understand your own temperament, you have no business in the market. If you don't understand what your mistakes are, what your problems are, if you can't look at your own mistakes honestly, you really shouldn't do it. I'm very influenced by, I think, one of the best papers ever written by Charlie Munger on the 21 or 22 most common misjudgments, psychological misjudgments in investing. Can we pick one or two? Yeah, bias, cognitive biases, biases of learning, biases of chemical, like you've put too many chemicals in your brain to be able to think clearly. 22 misjudgments. And a friend of mine, a colleague, he can look at any uh, company or he can look at an investment decision to say, oh, that's the bias of confirmation bias, which means all these people are buying it. Oh, no, which is, I like this stock, so I'm going to listen to this guru, and if he says it's good, that means I'm right. No, it doesn't mean you're right. Temperament and learning and reading that article about uh, the 22 most common misjudgments that occur, and I think it's dead on. I think that if you do your homework and you're a fundamental investor, looking at the intrinsic value of a company, what is it worth, and you're refusing to pay more than it's worth, and if you're extremely patient, then, you know, people keep pointing out about Berkshire Hathaway. Every year for five decades, they defeat the random walk theory of investing, which says that it's a crapshoot, basically, which says that you can just buy an index fund and nobody can outperform the market. Well, every year for 50 years, Berkshire Hathaway has proven differently. Dr. Stephen Goldstein, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. It's been a real pleasure. been more than a pleasure. What is the best way to reach you? 323-653-4206. I've been speaking with psychologist and financial planner, Dr. Stephen Goldstein. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.